0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series, and now here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, those of you who know me at all know one of my great loves and one of my great passions uh, is sailing, and uh, it really comes from my dad. My dad was the one who got me started sailing, and it was actually in the hi- in the freshman year of my high school um, freshman year of high school that my dad bought his first boat. A uh, little twenty-six foot Excalibur, and um, he bought the boat, and he got me started sailing. And and of course, it wasn't long after we started sailing we started racing because that's what you do when you're a sailor. You know, if there's two boats out on the water at the same time, it's a race. That's just how it goes. And uh, so what we did was we actually formally entered into the uh, YRA One Design racing season and started racing. And, and I remember our first season. And um, if you ever raced on or sailed on San Francisco Bay, you know it can be it can be tricky at sometimes, because uh, it can get pretty windy, and it can get, you know, some pretty good rollers going through there uh, on the waves, and so there was one particular race, and we were racing the city front, which is like the most grueling course of all of them, and then we had to, um, we had to go over to a, a buoy out over on the other side, the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge, and then Spinnaker run back, or Spinnaker reach back, which is a really, really tight point of sail, and so you got that big kite out there, the big spinner out in front, and um, it was blowing like crazy, It's probably blowing like 15, 20 knots, and, and rollers coming through, they looked to me like they were at least 8, 10 feet tall, they are probably only 3 or 4, but, you know, they're just huge, and so we're surfing down the face of these waves, and the wind is blowing, and we're like right on the edge, and I'm, I'm hanging onto the sheets, and I'm holding on tight, and it's like bare knuckle, you know, white knuckle time, you know, and I turn around, and I look back, and my dad is in the cockpit, he's at the helm, and he's got a big smile on his face, and he goes, man, this is living, <laughs> <laughs> I had other thoughts at the time, but he thought it was living. But that's my dad. Um, he's always been one of those guys. He just, you know, he doesn't just passively go through life. He lives it. At age 70, he took his first skydive. I mean, you know, that, that's my dad. Five years ago, he went on a missions trip uh, to Haiti and was um, actually in the country of Haiti building church buildings there because he's a building contractor. Um, and he's like 72, 73 years old at the time. Um, he got a, a sliver in his knee, and it, it got so badly infected because his conditions there were so bad, he actually almost lost his leg, actually almost lost his life, because they got home, they, they got home, got off the airport, off the plane at the airport, went straight to the hospital. Doctor said if they waited till tomorrow morning, he would have lost a leg, possibly his life. That's my dad. He's retired now. He spends most of his time traveling on short-term mission trips. He's been to Egypt, Morocco. Brazil, uh, Kenya, Haiti, I mean, he's all over the place. For my dad, he knows how to live life, and it's what I admire about him. Now, I wanna ask you this morning for you, what's living? And what is it that makes you think, man, this is living? Some people, you're those adrenaline junkies. You love jumping out of planes and all that kind of stuff, you know, rock climbing. Some of you just love the serenity of a cool mountain stream somewhere backpacked in, just being in nature. For some of you, it's like out on the golf course. That's where you are closest to God. That's when you pray the most in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Others of you, maybe, it's, maybe it's, um, it's, it's your business. It's closing the deal. It's sealing the program. You know, whatever it is. Or, or for some, maybe it's family or friends. But the question I want to ask you is this morning, what is living for you? I don't know if you saw this article. It was in yesterday's Contra Costa Times. Just fit perfectly. A guy named Ian Usher, 44 years old, in Perth, Australia, has had enough of his life, and in June, he is selling it on eBay. (laughs) His old life is apparently worth at least $385,000. That includes a house, a car, a motorcycle, jet ski, and spa. But wait, there's more. Act now, and he'll send you introductions to his great friends and his job, (laughs) pending a two-week trial. The reason for this file sale, he just got divorced. His ex-wife's comment, He seems a bit mental to me. (laughs) So look for it in June. You know, start your bidding now. He's putting his life up for sale. Just had enough. What's living for you? Easter is a celebration of the resurrection, but not just the event of the resurrection. It's a celebration of life, the life that we now have because of Christ's resurrection. And three years before The resurrection three years before his arrest and sham of a trial and execution on a cross three years before all of that at the very very beginning of his ministry he had a conversation a man named nicodemus came to him and wanted to have a conversation about life what is this life you're talking about what is this life in the kingdom of god that you keep teaching about In the conversations recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus said in reply to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born once he is old? Nicodemus said, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. If you skip down on verse 16, here's the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's it. That's life. And what Jesus talked about three years before his arrest and the way that he lived his life and performed his ministry and went through his life on this earth for those three years of teaching and proclaiming and miracle working that ended in and culminated in his death and resurrection. All of it was all about this one sentence. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe on him shall not perish but have eternal life. He said, that's it. That's what it means to be fully alive. To be fully alive, first of all, is to know you are loved by God. That's where he starts this whole thing. God so loved the world. This is the thing that separates Christianity from any other belief system, any other religion there is in this world. Because Christians believe not in a faceless, impersonal, cold, distant God, but in a loving, compassionate, caring, personal God. And I want to tell you this morning, there is no one who will ever love you more than God does. No one. In fact, the Bible tells us that our whole idea of God, our whole whole, idea of love, our whole concept of love, any love that we might experience in this world, in this life, has its roots in God. John writes, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. That's where it comes from. And you need never doubt God's love for you. Sometimes you go to a sporting event, baseball game maybe, or basketball game, and, and you see it every once in a while. You know, somebody puts up a, a marriage proposal like up on the scoreboard. You know, Cindy, will you marry me? You know, and then the cameras were all trying to find where is Cindy seated and what's she going to say, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, they put it all up on the jumbotron there, and you can watch it. Well, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, um, it actually happened at a Sacramento Kings basketball game at halftime, I believe. Um, and a guy decided he was going to ask this woman to marry him. And at, actually out at center court at halftime, and he got down on one knee, and he brought out the ring box, and, and actually they were, I, I heard the radio broadcast of it, um, and something went wrong. Because he got down on one knee, right there at center court in front of all these people, opened up the ring box, and you could see the look on her face. She was not ready ready and prepared for this. And she bent over, and she whispered a few things in his ear, and then walked off the court, leaving him standing there right in the middle. Yeah. Oh, now I don't know about you, but if I'm going to pop that question... I'm going to be pretty sure the answer is going to be yes. <laughs> Especially if I'm going to do it in front of 20, 30,000 people, you know. But here's the thing. You need never doubt that God will love you. You need never doubt that you would turn to him and say, God, would you love me for the rest of my life? You need never fear that he's going to turn his back, whisper something in your ear, and walk away. Because Jesus said, God loves the world and people who don't understand that don't really understand God they think God only loves certain people only the right kinds of people God only loves good people God only loves lovable people godly kind of people God doesn't love everybody. In fact, this man, Nicodemus, that Jesus has this conversation with, we're told he was a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, you need to understand something about Pharisees. Pharisees were like, they were like the purists when it came to religion, it was their job to make sure that everybody obeyed the rules. It was their job to make sure that they did everything right in their own life, that they lived as purely and and cleanly and and as, as, as acceptable to God as they possibly could so that God would love them. And they made it their job to make sure everybody else did that too. And they were the determiners about who God loved and who God didn't love. And so when Jesus says to this man named Nicodemus, who has this concept that God only loves certain people and the right kinds of people, and he says to him, no, God loves the world. Nicodemus is blown away. This is not anything that he would expect. And what Jesus is telling him is that God's love is unconditional. It's not something that you earn. It's not something you deserve. God loves because God loves. And not just a few people. God loves the world. It's for everyone. It's personal. I remember when I was a little kid growing up in Sunday school, one of the things that our Sunday school teacher did for us was to help us personalize this whole idea was they taught us to to memorize this verse God so loved the world but he said put your own name in there in place of the world God so loved Ken Jensen that he gave his one and only son that Ken Jensen would believe in him would have eternal life that's the invitation that's what Jesus is saying here that God loves the world and John, who wrote our gospel here that we're reading from, he got it. Did you catch it in the scripture we read earlier, the account of the resurrection? When Mary comes and she finds the tomb empty and she goes and she runs and finds Peter and John. And it says there, when she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Okay, that, the one Jesus loved, that's John. In fact, throughout John's gospel, every time you come across that in there, there's always a... And the, the disciple Jesus loved. He's talking about himself. He's always referring to himself. He doesn't use his own name, and he says, the disciple Jesus loved. But notice, that sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that just sound kind of like, okay, John, back off a little. But notice he doesn't say, the disciple Jesus loved only, or the disciple Jesus loved the best. It was just the disciple that Jesus loved. What he understood was, this is personal. And it became his identity. I am someone Jesus loves. He made it personal. And life, to be fully alive, is to know that kind of love. To know that you are loved by God. And in that love, to discover the amazing power of his grace... Because that's what it's all about at its heart at its simplest grace simply means gift and that's what the rest of the sentence goes on to say God so loved the world that he gave He gave his one and only son It is the nature of love to give that's what love does And christians believe not only that god is a loving god, but his love is a self-sacrificing love And there is no other religion in this world no other belief system no other philosophy that believes that That God is a self-sacrificing, loving God. And Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he did it. He lived and loved in that way. And in Christ we understand our right standing with God does not come from our own efforts. It comes through him. Peter wrote about it this way. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do it? To bring you to God. It's the only reason he did it. To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, and he's telling him about this life and this power and this love and this grace. And he says it is something that is so powerful, it is something that is so life transformational, that there's only one way it can be described. A rebirth born again it's a fresh start it's life transforming and nicodemus says how can this be how can this be and jesus said flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again let me ask you this morning how much did you have to do with your own birth The answer would be pretty much nothing. (laughs) You just showed up, okay? That's all you did. About nine months previous, you were conceived by your parents in an act of love. And within the first 22 days or so, right around day 22, your heart started beating on its own. Just kicked right in. And you continued to grow in the womb. And some 250-something days after that, you entered into this life. And you did nothing to make it happen except show up. Your life came to you as a gift. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, there's another life. There's another heartbeat. It's your spiritual heartbeat. And that needs to be quickened and brought to life too. Because you see, someday, someday that heart that's beating inside of you, that physical heart is going to stop beating. It's inevitable. Every one of us in this room, someday that heart is going to stop beating. But your spiritual heart is going to continue on. And he says, that's the kind of birth you need. That's the kind of life you need. To be fully alive is to know that you are loved by God and you've experienced the power of His grace. Now that's God's part of it. He's done all of that already. God loves. God gave. Now the second part, he says, okay, let's turn around. What do you do with this? How do you get into this life? Well, you begin to follow him now with your whole heart. You make a decision about it. That's the second part of the sentence. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's our part in this life. That is our part in getting into this life with God. It's to believe it's to trust. It's to follow. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And I've been racking my brain this week trying to figure out, okay, how else can I picture that for people? How can I help people understand? Because there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to faith. And we talked about it on staff, and I kind of came up with this this morning, okay? So I brought a couple of props along to kind of help you better understand faith, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm one for three this morning. I just want you to know. Now you're asking yourself, what in the world does baseball have to do with faith? Let me explain. A few years ago, a man named Robert Adair wrote a book called The Physics of Baseball. Robert Adair was a physics professor at Yale University, now retired. And he went and looked at the game of baseball, the numbers, the science of it. And here's what he came up with. When it comes to hitting, he said the the most difficult thing in all of sports, the most difficult thing in all of sports is to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And he actually went through the calculations. Let me give them to you. A 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels 60 feet 6 inches, that's the distance from pitcher's mound to home plate, 60 feet 6 inches in 400 milliseconds. Okay, that's a little less than half a second. That's how fast the ball comes. From pitcher's mound, home plate, 60 feet, 6 inches, 400 milliseconds. Now, it takes half that time, 200 milliseconds for the batter just to pick up the ball, just to catch the ball and find out where it is and where it's coming from, okay? And to make a decision about that. It takes another 100 milliseconds for him to figure out where the pitch is going to end up, okay? Is it going to be high? Is it going to be low, inside, outside? And, and, and has to determine where, where the swing needs to go to meet the ball, okay? That takes 100 milliseconds. And then it takes another 150 milliseconds just to complete the swing. So do the math. 200 milliseconds to just pick up the flight of the ball. Another 100 to determine where it's going and where it's going to end up. 150 milliseconds to be able to complete the swing. In other words, his calculations say it is impossible It's impossible. It cannot be done. It is impossible to... And most major league pitchers now pitch higher than 90 miles an hour. It is impossible to hit a 90-mile... Science proves it is impossible. And yet they do it all the time. How do they do it? Steroids. No. (laughs) No. No. Because scientifically, it's not possible. It cannot be done. And yet, all the time, they do it. I don't, but other people do. How do they do it? See, here is the point. Because I don't want to make light of faith. And I don't want to kind of trivialize belief. But it really comes down to this. Just because something is not explainable does not mean it is not believable just because it cannot be fully explained or fully understood or even mathematically scientifically figured out to be impossible does not mean does not mean it cannot be believed because our experience shows that it can it can and that's the whole point when it comes to faith. What I want you to understand is some of these common misunderstandings we have of faith are things that keep us from truly entering into this life. Because some of us have this thought of faith this, that it's just this blind leap. You know, you've probably heard that. Take a leap of faith as if there's no evidence, there's nothing to support it. Just believe, just jump out there. But that's not what we're asked to do. There is reason for our faith. There is reason for our belief. Jesus put it this way. He says, it's like the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He said, this life of faith has evidence to it. We don't know everything about it. It cannot be explained by the scientific method, and it cannot be calculated mathematically, but it's real. It's as real as the wind. You cannot see the wind, but you see its effects. You understand what it does. You can learn how to harness it. So it is with this new birth. This life of faith, you're not asked to make a blind leap. You're asked to make a decision based on what you do understand. There is evidence. And when you take that step of faith and you begin to follow, you begin to see God in all kinds of ways that you never saw Him before. You begin to recognize his work in your life that you thought was just coincidence all along. But he had a purpose. See, that's what it means to begin to follow. Another common misbelief is the idea that if I'm truly going to believe it, if I'm truly going to follow then that means I can never ever have any questions or ever have any doubts. And I can't do that, so I can't believe because I still have questions and I still have doubt, Let me tell you, folks, you can still believe and follow wholeheartedly without having all the answers. That's what makes it faith. You don't get all the answers, but you make a choice to follow and you pursue that with all of your heart. And that's what faith is. Mary did not understand what was going on. She had no belief in a resurrection. All she knows is she shows up at the tomb on that Sunday morning and it's empty and she can't understand it. In fact, her first thought is, grave robbers, they've come and taken the body. And that's what she does when she runs and finds Peter and John. She runs and finds them and she says, um, come see, come see. I don't know what's happened. They've taken the body. And so they run and they, find, they get there. And when they get there, in fact, actually, John pats himself back a little bit. He was faster. He got there first. He says it. Okay. He makes it, give them all, you know, round of applause. But he doesn't go in. He stops, and then um, Peter finally catches up. Peter may be slow, but once he's got ahead of steam, he's not stopping. He just barrels right on through into the tomb. And then John follows him, and they look around, and here's what they see. They saw strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head, folded up by itself, separate from the linen. He saw and believed. Now, what did he see? What did he see that made him believe? See, the popular theory was grave robbers. They've come and taken the body. That's what Mary reports. They come and they see, and when they come and they see, what they see is burial cloths lying there, but the other thing they see is the part that was over the head, that was over the face, is folded up neatly over on the side. And when John sees that, he says, this was not grave robbers. Because if you've ever had your house burglarized or your car burglarized, you, don't know, you know they don't take the napkins and fold it up neatly and put it off to the side. <laughs> He sees something here and he says, this is not the work of men. I don't understand it completely. In fact, that's what it says. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from dead. They didn't get all the, the, all the understanding of it. But what they saw was enough. God's done something here. This is not something that man has done. This is not grave robbers. This is, nothing, this is something different. And that was enough to believe. Did they have all the understanding? No. Did they have questions? Yeah. In fact, Jesus met with them later and answered some of the questions and gave some better explanation about what had happened. But at the moment, all it says is what they saw gave them reason to believe. And here is the point. You can believe with questions left over. You can choose to follow without having all the answers. Faith is not something that you've got to have it all figured out first. You make the steps of faith first. And the understanding follows. And our part is to begin to follow him with our whole heart. And then, with that, embrace the life that's filled with his presence. Because that's what happens. God's presence fills every aspect of your life. Jesus said, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I want you to understand, eternal life is not defined by its duration. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about eternal life as being just existence forever and ever and ever It's never defined that way. It is always defined in scripture as life with God Life in relationship with God. Yes, it carries through into eternity But it's not something for later on. It's for here and now It's life with God here and now and if you think it's just about heaven, you've missed the point Because Jesus is saying this is about life and that's what the disciples didn't understand See What we don't often understand is our sin does not make us bad people. Our sin makes us dead people. (laughs) Scripture tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that we're bad, it's that we're dead and we need rescue. That's why he says God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We needed rescue because we're dead. His resurrection comes to bring us life. If it was just about forgiveness, then the death on the cross is enough. But he didn't come just to forgive our sins, although that's a big part of it. The other part of it is that we would live this new life, and the resurrection tells us it's all about life. It's, that's the new birth that Jesus talked about three years previously. Jesus died so we could be forgiven, but he was resurrected so we could have life. And that's the part they didn't quite get. They didn't understand it yet. And we know that because after all of this, it says the disciples went back to their homes. It was just kind of like, wow, that was interesting. That was kind of exciting. That was pretty cool, you know? Grave clothes, you know? Napkin rolled up neatly on the side. You know? All right, folks, go on home. Show's over. Nothing here to see, you know? What they didn't get was this wasn't an event. It was the beginning of a new life. And for a lot of people, I think Easter is just an event. Once a year, put on your Sunday best, show up, sing a few songs, and go to your home. What they didn't understand was this is about life. This isn't about routine, it not about tradition, It not about religion, it's about life. Jesus said, I have come so that they would have life. I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's the thing that you're looking for. And there's something inside of you that's saying, that's the life, that's the thing, that's what you've been looking for, that's what you've been missing. You need to get in on this. It's time to make a decision about it. And yet there's probably another voice on the other side saying something like, but you're too young. you got too much of life still ahead of you. Or you're too old. you got too much life still behind you. <laughs> Or you got other things you want to do or things you don't want to have to give up. And you're thinking, why would I want that life? But I got this life. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I came that you would have life at its fullest possible. Whatever that means, giving up in exchange, is far worth it. Because the life that you get in return is the life that you were designed to live from the very, very beginning of creation. It is the life that God has had for you all along. And Jesus is saying this morning, "In His resurrection, choose life. Choose life. Do you bow your heads with me? What kind of blows me away about the whole resurrection story is that this offer of life, this life, begins at a place of impossibility. It happens in a place of death, at a tomb. But that's where God always does His best work. When things seem impossible. When life comes to a dead end. When it seems like there is no hope or nowhere to turn. That's why we need Him. It all starts with God. God loves. God gives. And then our part we believe and we live and today I want to invite you to make a decision about this God's already done his part Easter is the declaration it's not just an event it's about life and if you're here this morning and you want to get in on this life you can do it in a very very simple prayer I'm going to invite you to do that in a moment. But as we do that, I want to pray with you and for you too. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing. I'm not going to ask you to get up out of your seat. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to raise. All I'm going to ask you to do is just simply look up and catch my eye. Everybody else has their eyes closed. Okay, so you don't have to be worried about this. But if you're ready to take that step of faith, look up and catch my eye. Keep looking until I see you and acknowledge you. Yeah. All right. Loving me. For loving me with such a self-sacrificing love and paying such a huge debt for my sin so that I could have life. And this morning, Lord, I admit I've got mistakes, I've got failures, I've got sin in my life, and it's killing me. And I need your forgiveness. So right here, right now, I'm making a choice to believe, to trust you, to follow you. Please remove my sin from me. Put that new life within me and let me live in you. Show me this life. Teach me your ways and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.